Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. and welcome to New Books in History. My name is Christine Lamberson, and I'll be your host today. Today, I'll be speaking with Brian Leach about his new book called The City That Ate Itself, Butte, Montana, and its expanding Berkeley Pit. This has just come out this year from the University of Nevada Press and is part of the Mining and Society series. And Brian is a newly associate professor, I believe, at Augustana College in Rock Island, Illinois. Thanks for joining me. Welcome, Brian. Thanks for having me, Christine. Uh, yeah, I, so, believe, I believe it. Oh, go ahead. No, go right ahead. I was going to say, I think associate kicks in next year, but we'll call myself associate now. How about that? That sounds good. <laughs> a soon-to-be associate professor, officially approved. Yes. Very exciting. Congratulations. Um, all right. Well, let's just get started talking a little bit about your book and um, your career. So let's start do you want to tell me a little bit about how you got to be interested in history and decided to become a historian? Well, um, becoming a historian is actually um, a little bit more difficult, although I'd say in general, you know, I, like most people who uh, got interested in history, just loved reading history books and articles. There's a a magazine that's kind of a a semi-scholarly, semi-popular magazine in Montana called Montana, the Magazine of Western History, which was always sitting on my bookshelf. So I read a lot of it when I was younger. Um, So it seemed like a normal thing for a person to do uh, was to do some history. And then uh, I think really in some ways it just became a great way to explain the places that I was living in. So I'm certainly kind of a a place-based historian in the sense that wherever I am in a place, I want to understand it better. And it seems like figuring out its past is the best way to do so. Okay. Well, we went to graduate school together. So I know that you have a particular love of Montana, your Mm -hmm. uh, home state. But even with that in mind, can you tell me a little bit more about how you got interested in mining history and came to really be interested in this topic to write this book? Yeah, well, it starts early, especially if you're in Montana, because I I feel like uh, growing up, I drove by mines all the time. In fact, we even had a school field trip. This might sound strange to other people, but we had a school field trip to the Golden Sunlight Mine outside of Whitehall, Montana. So I remember getting a little hard hat and walking around and having them show their their reclamation process. So um, I, I think I was always kind of immediately fascinated by this weird equipment that was sitting next to me trying to understand what they were doing there. Um, this particular project in some ways is, is simply uh, because uh, Butte, Montana um, is a place that I went to all the time as a, as a, as a kid also, right? We, we certainly knew many people who lived there. Um, and I'd go and visit and it seemed so different from where I was living in Bozeman at the time. Um, it seemed 
much cooler. There were all sorts of uh, things happening there. And more importantly, there was this big and massive pit sitting in the middle of it. Um, and, you know, if I asked people about it, I got really vague comments about how there used to be more town there. Um, and so I think that always stuck with me. And so when I decided to go to graduate school in history and I was trying to figure out questions to answer historically, there was this kind of immediate question that had always been with me, which is, you know, how did this pit uh, become made? <laughs> what, where did it come from? Um, what used to be there? Because there was all these, you know, kind of uh, vague comments about things that had been there um, before this pit. And and now the, the pit itself, right, is, is essentially filled up with water. It's kind of a bit of a toxic stew. And so the kind of environmental impact of mining was immediately interesting to me, too. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about what this pit is and how it became a pit. So your book is tracing this uh, mining history, and you're talking about a shift from underground mining to open pit mining and the social history and environmental history of those effects. Uh, So to start, can you just tell me a little bit about... um, I guess that overview about when that shift happened and why it happened. And then maybe we can back up and talk a little bit about the the different steps. Yeah. Well, I I think Butte's a a, a great place to study if you're interested in, in really the differences between underground and open pit mining. I think in a lot of other places, right, you either start with underground mining and then it ends, or you start with open pit mining, you know, creating these massive holes and then it ends. And so Butte, because it has this really long history of underground mining beginning uh, really, you know, in the 1860s, 70s, depending on when you want to uh, um, date it, really the 1870s, right? It has this long history as a, as a silver and then copper producer. And so then the shift to open pit mining doesn't happen really until in the 1950s when they're doing lots of different tests and they realize that this um, essentially would have become kind of a a new approach to mining beginning in the 19 teens and twenties is going to work in Butte. And that new approach really is, is all about kind of moving away from selective mining where you go underground and you find specific veins and you're very focused on digging those things out to process to a new kind of mining where essentially you just dig up as much as possible um, and use it, leaving kind of the processing of all of that until essentially the latter steps, right? Using the technology later to to do things like concentrate and smelt it together. Um, So in some ways, right, just getting the, the largest mass amount of stuff, not worrying as much about the waste is what happens um, in Butte, because they realize that it's just kind of broadly disseminated throughout some of these areas, and that they can just kind of dig a big hole and then start shoving it through technology, right? And so um, that that whole process um, in Butte and the effects, therefore, on on people in the environment is is where I'm headed in the in the book. That's what I'm trying to explain. Mm-hmm. So, can you tell me a little bit about the underground mine period in? In Butte history, I would suspect that probably most listeners or or most Americans who know something about mining or the image that they have in their head of, um, you know, early 20th century or late 19th century mining is probably the underground mining. But can you tell us just a little bit about what that community looked like, what kind of workers were there, those sorts of things? Yeah, I mean, I think underground mining is this kind of 
I don't know, mythic, romantic kind of <laughs> a viewpoint to it right now. Um, and so I think you're right. That's what most people would think of when you say mining in, in the United States. In, in, in Butte, you know, it's, um, it was a really uh, a complicated um, process for, in some ways, but in other ways, right, what, what happens um, is y- you're kind of following these, these copper veins underground in Butte, it, it starts out really in, in is kind of an ethnic tale as many of these mining towns do, right. Where, you know, it becomes the big driver for immigration once they figure out that there's more than just silver, but there's massive amounts of copper, um, right at around the same time, right. That they suddenly need copper to do things like electric wires, right. In the early 20th century. And so, um, the kind of underground period for, for Butte looks similar to some of these other places in the sense that it's, it's incredibly dangerous, right? These, uh, in fact, in Butte in 1917 at the speculator or granite mine mountain disaster suffers the, the worst um, metal mining disaster uh, still in history, right? Where, you know, hundreds of people are, are killed in an underground fire. Um, and, you know, but there's cave-ins, there's, you know, just the, the basic dangers of doing that job. It's a, it's a really uh, hard and tough job. And I think partly because it's so hard and tough, it kind of gained a little bit of that kind of mythic romantic quality. And so especially a lot of the guys who used to do this work uh, loved it, right, and loved the fact that it was dangerous and, you know, masculine and, you know, this kind of manly energy to it. Um, so it kind of shapes a lot of the culture there. And because it drives all this immigration, it certainly shapes a lot of the culture above ground, too. They, they certainly learn to live with mining and, and, you know, it forms lots of these little ethnic neighborhoods like, like you'd see in kind of a larger city, right? Um, but, you know, certainly these little industrial centers like mining towns look like big cities in that way, too, where you have an Irish neighborhood and an Italian neighborhood and, uh, you know, you name it. And so um, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really exciting period. I'd say, you know, it's also in, in Butte and in lots of other places, it's actually fairly well studied, right? Because there's also a lot of exciting things that happen, you know, massive industrial unions that uh, form and that, um, you know, take shape in, in Butte. Actually, one, one of them, the Western Federation of Minings, later becomes known as a fairly radical union, although it's in some ways kind of conservative, right? But, you know, a lot of these um, uh, kind of big industrial unions that are become so important to the early 20th century, right? come out of places like Butte and mining towns like that too. So there's d- definitely kind of a whole cultural that goes, that goes along with underground mining. Mm-hmm. And that labor is relatively skilled and yeah. they, those kind of masculine skilled laborers have a certain amount of independence, right? As Very they're underground. So. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's an incredibly independent job. And in fact, some of the, um, interviews, both that I conducted, but uh, that I also read with other people, right? So it's kind of funny because, you know, in a lot of these cases, people were paid on contract, <clears throat> which means, right, the amount you produce um, out of your section of the mine is how you get paid. And so that meant that they kind of got to do what they wanted um, to some extent, right? If they didn't want to make as much money, then they wouldn't dig up as much, right? Um, and so <laughs> there's these great stories of like guys, you know, going down and when they got tired, they just kind of turn off their lamps and take a nap. Um, they're, they're, you know, certainly fairly unsupervised, right? Because, you know, a supervisor couldn't go through these, you know, hundreds and soon to be thousands of miles of, of, 
of tunnels underground, right, um, to check up on everybody. And so, yeah, it's it's very independent. And because it's it's based on contract for a lot of these people, certainly not everyone, lots of other people are doing other kinds of underground jobs. But, you know, that also means there's like this kind of competitive, exciting aspect to it, right, so that you can be the top of the leaderboard. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's it, it certainly uh, shapes a lot of what these um, these guys think about, you know, th- how important, um, their, their job is. Mm-hmm. So when the, the Anaconda company, right. Is the, mm-hmm. um, the, the mining company there decides that they're going to shift to open pit mining. Can you talk a little bit about why they want to do that? And then I want to talk about how the towns and the workers are reacting and what kind of changes ripple out from that. Yeah, well, they they start investigating rather quickly. Um, the, the company does kind of in the, in the. <laughs> it's interesting because uh, in some ways this this attempt that the Anaconda company, right, Anaconda becomes one of the kind of four big copper mining companies in the world, and its its basis where it is essentially born um, is in Butte, Montana, right? It's founded by this guy, Marcus Daly, who is a fairly famous Irish mining magnet, right? Um, one of the copper kings, as they call them in Butte. And so this company is kind of born in Butte. And when Butte uh, looks like it's, you know, having some some struggles, right, to keep producing the same ways that it was producing um, in the middle of the 20th century, uh, I think there's a lot of the people, people like Cornelius Kelly, who's, who's at that point president of the Anaconda Company, who decide that, this this open pit way of mining might be the way to go because what it's going to do for them is it's uh, it, it's essentially going to exp- extend the life of mining in that town. It's going to make it much more lucrative, they think, um, because as they're looking at all the different mines, right, you can you can go back into places that had already been mined underground, but maybe they left behind stuff, right? Or you can go into places where it was just hard to follow big veins because there were lots of little veins of copper. And so it just becomes uh, uh, fairly obvious to these people as they're investigating um, other kinds of mines, other kinds of mass, really kind of mass destruction or mass production technologies, right? You know, um, that an open pit's going to be the most effective. Mm Mm-hmm. So how do the um, locals respond to this plan to to shift to open pit mining? I'd say immediately they um, and I think even surprisingly to me, they were quite upset about it. Um, I guess I'd say surprising to me because I, I think I always had this perception that when you have a, a kind of a one company town like Butte, that people just go along with whatever the company says because, right, they're the kind of economic lifeblood, right, of that that fuels the place. Um, but in Butte, in the when when open pit mining becomes the way, you know, clearly the big shift, and by the 1950s, you know, the unions are clearly very upset, right? They're convinced that this is uh, a, a kind of a company uh, roost to, to steal more jobs, right? Um, and in some ways, right, it is because in an open pit mine, what you're doing is to some degree, it's kind of like construction work, right? You you have, you know, big machines to dig it up, toss it into massive 
trucks in Butte's case, although originally they were uh, trains and lots of other places, right? And then the trucks truck the stuff out, right? And so, you know, you you blast things with dynamite. I mean, it's just such a, um, a kind of process that requires so few workers. And so the miners uh, immediately understand this. And so there's major union protests. In fact, it's probably the driving factor and a couple, uh, you know, one, if not two of the major um, contract disputes uh, with the union and the company. Um, and the people in Butte also see this as a threat because in Butte, as in lots of other mining towns, right, you wanted to build your house as close as possible to where you want to work, right? And so when they were working underground, they all built their homes right around these underground mines. But of course, if that's the exact same place, right, where all the good copper is, then that also becomes the target for expansion. So as they start moving and building this particular open pit mine, although they also have another couple of smaller open pit mines that they start, right, it starts encroaching on people's living um, space, right, on these neighborhoods. It encroaches on um, business districts, homes. Um, and and so, you know, there's a lot of negotiations with um, uh, people as they go through to try and um, buy, buy them out, convince them to move. Um, there's lots of industrial hazards that get introduced into the neighborhoods where there's, you know, blasting, um, shooting rocks in through people's windows, um, uh, kind of causing lots of, um, consternation. So there's lots of, there's actually a fair amount of protest. And in fact, um, the first neighborhood that's really threatened with open pit mining, um, which is Walkerville, which is kind of in northern Butte. And it's really threatened largely by the um, Alice Pit, which is not the, the larger Berkeley Pit mine. They actually managed to fight off the Anaconda Company a couple of times. They, have, they come up with a, a variety of different kind of legal measures to do so. Walkerville itself was its own incorporated town, even though it's really kind of a neighborhood. And so they, they use things like um, encroaching on public roadways as ways to fight the company. Um, and it's expanding pit. And so, you know, there's, uh, to some extent, Anaconda immediately starts facing a lot of pushback from both neighborhood residents and from the unions. Mm-hmm. And how aware are the residents and the unions of the possible environmental hazards and the possible uh, or the likely expansive qualities of this kind of open pit mine. I mean, they're, they're clearly concerned about jobs. They're clearly, as things develop, become more and more concerned about this expansive nature. But do they have, have that sort of foresight, I guess, might be the way to mm. put that question? Yeah, I, I, it's, it's, I, I think in general, most of them are not. <laughs> well, I think there's two things going on. I, I, you know, uh, for one thing, the Anaconda Company keeps things pretty close uh, to the chest, so to speak, and they do not tell much about their plans to the community. And there's some good reasons for that. In some cases, the company wasn't quite sure sometimes, right? They had not tested specific areas, so they didn't know if they were going to expand into them. Um, And so just in terms of kind of when it was going to expand, how it was going to expand, where it was going to expand, there becomes a bit of a interplay where the company essentially stays mute in most cases. um, And that actually in some ways causes extra panic right, amongst townspeople who are never quite sure, right, if they are going to need to sell out or if their neighbor is going to sell out and if their neighbor sells out, if they need to sell out. I think in terms of knowing more about what the actual environmental impact would be, I think in, in, 
you know, they certainly understood that there were some major hazards, right? This is because it's a place that had long seen mining, right? There had always been mining dumps in places. There had always been, um, and, and people had known that there were some hazards, although in general, they were fairly accepting of these things, right? They didn't immediately see them as environmental issues, um, or the fact that the creek that runs through there, Silverbow Creek, right, would often turn red, right, with copper, right? People knew this this wasn't a great idea, right? Um, but I think in terms of seeing this kind of expanding environmental disaster, really kind of a very slow-moving environmental disaster, uh, yeah, I don't think I don't think um, people in in Butte saw it that way. At least not until. Um, you're getting in the 1960s and 1970s where some of the kind of awaking environmental consciousness across the United States, right, helps make people more aware of what this really means. Um, but on the other hand, the kind of immediate um, hazards that they face, right, uh, rock blasting, rumbling, <laughs> right, uh, um, through the air, those kinds of concussions, um, being concerned about the dust in the air um, in particular, um, you know, there was always kind of a haze over the pit, right, as they're blowing up things. Um, they're pretty immediately aware, right, that these things could be serious hazards. And so they, they'll send in, you know, there's, I looked at boxes and boxes of, of complaints, right, complaints to the company. And clearly, they understand that these things are dangerous, and they want to get some sort of response from the company. Okay. Um, so could you just, I want to give listeners kind of a, a feel of some of this. Could you pick, I don't what whatever is your favorite example of uh, a person or a place in the neighborhood, whether Walkerville or somewhere else, um, of the immediate protest or response or kind of attempts to shape um, how this is going to go mm-hmm. and, and tell us a little bit about that struggle? I mean, I think a really good example is um, a community like Meterville, um, which I spend a fair amount of time on in my book, Meterville um, is, is you know, I think in some ways the contrast with a place like Walkerville, which is in some ways more successful, um, I think works well. Meterville was was kind of like the, it was both the, the major Italian-American neighborhood in Butte, and it was also kind of the nighttime hotspot, right? And so by, by the middle of the 20th century, right, that's where you'd go because everyone, you know, the, it was the little Italy, essentially, of uh, certainly Butte, if not Montana. And, and, you know, people even talked about it like a like a little Las Vegas, right? There was gambling, sometimes illegal in back rooms. <laughs> there were there were live music constantly um, in ever, all of these clubs that were lining the, the main streets, Um as well as a really strong sense of community for these Italian Americans um, who who built up, you know, uh, strong food traditions. Some of which were, you know, portrayed in the restaurants themselves. These kind of grand meals, um, as well as you know, lots of really strong visitations. But the, they they have a lot of problems, right? Meterville does because, you know, they essentially are not in a strong bargaining position when it becomes clear that the Berkeley pit's going to expand into them. Um, and that's partly because unlike a place like Walkerville, where most people owned their own land and hence had to get paid for it, most of the people in places like Meterville or McQueen, which was kind of a Slavic neighborhood, a lot of, a lot of the people in Meterville didn't own their own land, right? And so what they were doing is they were renting essentially company land. Um, and so that meant... You know, you could, um, you know, they they could essentially get away with just kind of paying for the home, right? So they'd find a 
you know, there'd be like a widowed miner's wife, right, who was only receiving a few hundred dollars. And they essentially would get very little and could kind of very quickly be relocated. In other places, a place like Walkerville or, or even a place like McQueen, where they own more of their land, right, people typically would get much better deals for their homes. But the other part of the process that the company uses is that um, in 1961, when they're when they're facing all of this, you know, protest from places like Walkerville and Meterville in their initial expansions of the Berkeley Pit, um, they go to the state legislature where they, you know, Anaconda Company had long held sway um, in the state, and they ask they they ask for and receive a, a bill that um, gives the mining company the power of eminent domain, right? So it can condemn lands, right? And then just pay people fair market price, right? For their lands, just like a kind of a, you know, whatever, a a public place, right? A a public university can do this now, right? And so they essentially got this power that a a public enterprise could have. And so they almost never used that power, but that threat of condemnation gets used over and over again, right? Um, And so they, they kind of develop this routine where they have a threat um, going in, they are always trying to keep costs down. <laughs> and so um, they they have a, a pretty strong system of, of uh, you know, not, not fierce, forceful power, right? But certainly a, a strong hand in a lot of the buying and selling of the property. And so a place like Meterville or a place like McQueen, right, gets reloc- relocated kind of piece by piece. And then eventually, right, these neighborhoods right, or get robbed of services because now there's no longer, right, like a tax base, for instance, to support your local volunteer fire department and so, or to keep the lights on, right? And so, although there's always holdouts in a lot of these areas, um, they, you know, it gets really depressing, right? As the, as the mining dumps grow around them, as their neighbors leave, as tensions grow high in the community because, you know, your neighbor Joe sold, you sold out and, now you're left there. Um, and so although even places like Meterville had tried to have kind of a unified response at first, right, the company would negotiate fairly qu- silently with, you know, individuals and eventually, right, whether or not they intended this, people would just start, you know, um, being worried and convinced that their neighbors were going to sell out before they would, right, and that then they wouldn't get a, a deal on their property or that, you know, and so it becomes in some ways a, a fairly um, standard, but often very sad process, right? For these people who become relocated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so how does relocation work and and what happens to these, to these people who are being relocated? Well, a lot of different things happen. I, I think um, one of the, um, I'd say in general, especially early on, they they try to relocate. In fact, these neighborhoods want to like get relocated together, right? Because they have such strong relationships. In fact, you know, often people will not only know everybody on their street, but they'll often be related to many of them, right? (laughs) Because, Mm -hmm. um, you know, especially in terms of ways that they had, you know, their families had originally migrated, right? It was chain migration in the sense that they would kind of follow family members. Um, And so... They would uh, often want to try and get relocated near their neighbors. And the company does a little bit of that early on, but they have their own kind of real estate company, right? And so they they sell people stuff in an area named McGlone Heights first, which is where a lot of the people in Meterville go. But they run out of space fairly quickly, and so then they start selling them in other areas. 
there was a, a area of Butte called the Flats, which is essentially most of Butte's kind of built, or at least the center of Butte is built up on top of the hill where all the mines are. And then the Flats down below, right, is is um, kind of the valley, the mountain valley. And so a lot of other people would get moved down there. And eventually what happens, right, is you get relocated to places pretty far away, often from your own neighbors. M- many of these people in Butte were Catholics, and they would get kind of relocated out of their own home parish. Um, and so there was, you know, I think a lot of, um, uh, I don't know, tension uh, would be one word, but, I, you know, uh, certainly a, a great degree of, of despair and sadness for a lot of these relocated people, because even if they got a really nice place, they'd often not be anywhere near their kind of home communities. And so in a place like Meterville, it was so built on Italian-American traditions and Italian-American clubs, right? the, the Cristoforo Colombo Club, right? A lot of these organizations lose a lot of uh, power and prestige and, and, you know, exciting cultural things that they could do. You know, the the Meterville Volunteer Fire Club, Fire, uh, Club would, you know, host these elaborate Christmas displays and they'd have big floats in the parade for Butte, right? Oh, so a lot of that just kind of disappears. And so there's certainly a sense that it's um, damaging the sense of community in a lot of these places. Mm-hmm. And what does this mean for jobs? I mean, that was one of their main concerns. Mm-hmm. And it, it is changing, as as you've already mentioned a little bit, the, the way the workforce or the way work um, operates within the mines. So, mm-hmm. so what does this mean for all these people? And especially since the union is a major part of the the pushback. Yeah. I mean, you know, when the, it's really, you know, the kind of turning points in 1959, 1960 for the, you know, so the unions are busy fighting and fighting and fighting and the, the company um, has a fairly successful um, way to fight back in the sense that because it's become such an international company at that point, right. That it has all these Mexican mines. Um, it has a massive mine in Chile, um, well, actually two big massive mines in Chile and they're producing just, you know, hundreds of thousands of tons more copper than they're getting out of Butte. Right. And so in some ways, right. Anaconda simply would say, you know, you're a marginal property, uh, Butte, you're not central to our future. So we could just shut you down if you give us any more trouble. And, you know, and so they would, you know, they would say, um, in other words, these union leaders were really caught in a bind, right? Because mm-hmm. they would they would talk a lot about the kind of productivity of their workers, but the only way they could do that would be to accept these job losses that open pit mining entailed, right? Because open pit mining was the way to make things more productive, right? And so, you know, eventually a lot of the union leaders kind of start accepting, you know, some of these um, fights. For the work itself, right, it changes dramatically in the sense that, uh, at least for those, you know, miners who transition from underground to above ground work, right, it's, uh, uh, you know, open pit mining is not incredibly safe, but it's certainly much safer, right, than being underground um, in the dark, right, Um it's more monotonous, right? Um, you you often, instead of doing one skilled job where you do all these different things, where you have to work with all these different tools to handle the explosives, and, and then you have to be the one to you know, to dig things out and help with partner, right? You're often working together very closely with a partner, if not a few other people in an underground mine, right? Here, you're you're kind of driven apart. You you know you you hardly see anyone unless it's at the lunchroom in an open pit mine. 
right? Because you're just doing one task over and over, right? You're the guy who drives the truck. So you drive a truck down, they load you up, you drive the circle out of the pit, and then you drop it off somewhere, depending on what it is, and then you drive it back, right? It's a very different uh, kind of job. And so they, they really start kind of missing that independence that, you know, distance and darkness in the underground had given them. Um, they missed the fact that they got paid kind of on, you know, because it wasn't contract labor anymore, right? And so they didn't feel like they were getting a lot for kind of accomplishing anything. And in some ways, there's also just more surveillance capability in an open pit mine where you can see everything and they have like a surveillance tower and they've got, you know, eventually kind of cameras up and everything, right? And so they they lose a lot of that. Plus, um, you know, the other kind of union story here is that um, the unions themselves kind of get driven apart. So as, as opposed to having one main union, right, there was the Butte Miners Union that helped serve everyone. Um, this kind of lack of togetherness uh, followed them into the open pit where there were lots of different unions, right? The crafts unions had these, you know, some of this uh, uh, work. Um, and there were lots of different crafts unions now that had more power than the miners union. And so the unions themselves would often bicker and they'd bicker over who could do what, right? There were jurisdictional disputes over like whether or not one guy could move a light or one, another person can move a cable, right? Because that was the electrician's job. And so all these things that were not problems underground became big problems above ground, right? And so they just got kind of frustrated about not being able to kind of contribute, do the, the kind of work that they used to be able to do. Plus, you know, because it wasn't so exciting and, and you know, masculine and, you know, all these kinds of exciting, you know, dangerous um, underground, they, um, a lot of the miners really felt, you know, uh, I mean, I, I, there's a quote I have in there somewhere where they were saying, you know, they, they felt like they were kings underground and then they just really felt small, you know, and tiny and, that they couldn't do much uh, anymore. And so uh, it, I think it was a really dramatic change for workers, this new um, shift to a different kind of, of workplace. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit more about workers in a few minutes, but before that, I was wondering if you might also talk a little bit more about the industrial hazards aspect and how, mm -hmm. I mean, how is the company trying to deal with that? How are those officials trying to mine, uh, to manage uh, the new industrial hazards that are coming out? And this is of course a, a moment when um, there's more concern about environmental hazards mm -hmm. and things of that nature as well. Well, they, they do kind of three separate things really, right? It's, it's not like there had been no hazards <laughs> to the rest of the right, community. Of course. In underground mining, um, but you know what they do is they they spend a lot of time kind of creating a, a really um, workable, I don't know what I want to call it, you know, bureaucratic system to mm -hmm. respond to complaints um, that you know has a number of different steps and different departments involved. Um, they also work really hard to do what I'd call you know regulating uh, what what people what residents sensed from uh, this this mining work. Um, and so <clears throat> they would, um, they often spend a fair amount of time, right? Sometimes the hazards would convince people to move, which in some ways isn't in the company's best interest. Right. But if those hazards become so dramatic that then people are complaining, 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 and then asking the company for legal, um, 
settlements, right, then that's something the company doesn't want. They want to spend a lot of extra money on this. So they also spent a fair amount of time trying to manage essentially what people sense. And what that actually looked like was they would, um, you know, essentially just work really hard at, at kind of new PR and community relations things, right? So they'd they'd send out a, a team of, of, you know, engineers when someone would complain. They would then explain that the rattling that these people sensed was, um, I don't know, from just trucks driving by on the street, not from the mine, or they'd talk to them about how that was, yes, that was rattling, but that was just air concussion and wouldn't actually damage anything because they would, you know, show on their dials, like, look, it needs to get to this level in order to truly damage your property, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so they kind of use this technical expertise, right, to fend off, um, you know, these these people who, you know, the residents who frankly didn't have that kind of technology, right, to, to, um, to fight back with, right? Um, and so they'd spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to decrease the noise coming out of the blast, right? And so they tried out different um, technological fixes there, um, or when, or how many how many blasts they do. So one thing they do is because um, they started doing f- fewer times that they'd blast a day, and only at regular times, right? Because if it happened more often, right. Um, then people would complain more. So it would just be like a noontime blast and an afternoon blast or, you know, they'd, um, they'd spend a lot of time paying attention to um, whether or not, you know, the atmosphere, you know, if there was like an air inversion, which would lead more sound to bounce back off, right. They wouldn't blast at certain times um, so that it wouldn't be as loud or as annoying. Um, And so they, they did lots of kind of little fixes like that. I'd say the most successful thing that they really did though, was they essentially just developed more of a buffer zone, you know, in a, in a place like Butte in the early 20th century, right, you kind of lived amongst the mines. But especially as these complaints became more troubling to the company, what they did is they just said, well, hey, let's just, you know, rearrange this. Let's just start buying more property, right? Um, expanding a buffer zone between the mining area and the um, and the neighborhoods themselves. So in some ways, right, it actually led to more property purchasing and more relocation Um because the the pits spreading these risks widely, right? But their wide dispersal <laughs> means that it was really hard for the residents to actually be able to prove any actual damage. Um, and so this buffer zone essentially just suggests that what they eventually um, figured out was the easiest thing was just to move people further away, right? So that they could uh, more easily convince them that it wasn't their problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so then you just have the mines eating up more and more space as right. they do that mm-hmm. expansion aspect. Right. So th- this, that tactic leads to the mine expanding even further mm-hmm. and eating up more and more space. As you mentioned, what, how do residents respond to this? You've talked a little bit about uh, which te- techniques were most successful um, for the company, but how are the residents trying to manage this, this new situation? Um, other than the, the, there is a lot of sadness and, and despair about it. And some of them are moving and some are not, but what is their response as things go further and further and the, and the pit is being built and expanded? Yeah, I mean, you're right. That's you know the, the kind of incredible hunger for land that these these operations meant that um, th- there's there's a lot of different kinds of responses. In some ways, what the the company decides to do. I mean, in some ways, they they decide to pay better prices. 
Um, that's one thing that they learn, right, is that um, that paying better prices works uh, better in terms of just leading to fewer people complaining later. They also try not to relocate so many houses and mass all at once, right? They want to bargain individually one by one. Um, that way they don't have kind of a community uproar, right? It's just kind of one person moves and then another person moves, right? Um, and so that that certainly happens too. I'd say, yeah, the, the demoralization works uh, also to their <laughs> advantage in, in some cases because eventually, right, this beca- it looks a lot like um, – oh, you know, urban renewal projects in larger cities in the sense that eventually they'd say, well, look, these are, you know, substandard homes. Now you're, this is the ramshackle neighborhood. Um, And so they can also convince other community members that, you know, in order to kind of, we need to remove the eyesores, right? And so Mm -hmm. that becomes one way that they um, help deal with that um, routine. Um, You know, and, and I think in general, right, just dealing individually with these people, um, divides residents from each other, right? Because there's no immediate sense of threat um, like there was early on. There's um, also some easy ways in which their kind of standard routine of, you know, th- right? They'll invest, they send people in the land department to look through abstracts and figure out the ownership and taxes and mining claims and things like that. So they know all sorts of things about the property going in that in some cases, a lot of the residents don't know um, and so they also kind of gain extra uh, negotiating power um, that way, too. Um, and so, you know, the kind of uh, that coupled with these gradual visual fronts and really in some ways what becomes a big problem in Butte is as more places get um, well emptied, there's arson problems, both in the neighborhoods and then eventually in in the uptown business district, right? As there's more buildings left empty, right? You're liable to run into fires. And so the kind of fires also push people out too. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm very curious about sort of the, the, the tail end of your book, or I was very interested in a couple of things there. Um, one, one is the memory aspect, but I'll, I'll ask yeah. about that in a second. But also, uh, you frame this in a way, or you mentioned that this is a tale of deindustrialization in a lot of ways, because this mine closes in the, in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, so what does that leave? Or, or how, how does that influence then, then what's um, going on in Butte and what that, that town looks like after the mine is closed? Yeah, and I think in Butte, this is also somewhat similar to some other mining communities in the sense that, you know, so the, the Berkeley pit itself closes in, in uh, 82 and, and, and the Anaconda Company, right, uh, it, get, it, sell, it gets sold to an oil company in the 70s and then it itself disappears, right? Um, and so it's interesting because they close down. Eventually, right, mining starts back up in Butte. So it's not like there's no mining going on, but now – they run that, they can run that, you know, that mines run from anywhere from like 400 people to 200 people. It's not right next door to the city either. So it's, it's less kind of in people's minds all the time. So it's interesting because there's still mining going on. Um, but I think, you know, because it's not so prominent because so few people work in it, right. The whole place, I think I, I agree. It, it feels, you know, it looks in some ways, right. Like um, whatever, like Rust Belt cities, right. Also who are, who are, who are, um, working and struggling to kind of rebuild and recover in the seventies, eighties and nineties. And so, um, yeah, it's, I, I think, 
um, Butte kind of struggling with and trying to figure out how to <laughs> remake itself is, I agree, kind of a very fascinating tale. And, and in Butte, it's particularly interesting to me because there are, uh, there's a large group of people in the community who um, start, you know, figure out that they're going to try and use federal monies, right, um, to to help change Butte and remake Butte. And so as the company itself is struggling, they say, well, hey, you know, what we should all go do is we should relocate, you know, uptown Butte Central Business District, which is actually a fairly grand business district for a city of its size. <clears throat> and they say, well, you know, probably the pit's going to come in here. They have no actual evidence yet that that's <laughs> going to happen. But there's, you know, there's a lot of, you know, th certainly there's fires and there's a lot of problems in Uptown Butte. And that's the direction in which the mine was moving. And so, you know, these city planners, they're, you know, young uh these, these kind of young buck city planners decide, well, hey, you know, what we'll do is we'll, we'll f f found our own group. They called it Forward Butte or Butte Forward, depending on the way they wrote it on their um, uh, literature at different times. And so the, the Butte Forward group, you know, tried to really uh, change Butte. They were going to move the city center somewhere, right? And so there was this all this big discussion about how they were going to move the city center as one way to battle bust, Right. And so they they you know spend all these long times debating you know how how do you move a blighted area what kind of area do you need they you know argue over whether or not it's going to go in a park um, and in fact in some ways um, <laughs> they that that ends up being the big problem for them right but they they found what what were known at the time were essentially called new towns which were kind of this big idea to solve the ills of haphazard post-war suburbanization, right. And, and decaying city centers, right. You're going to build a brand new place um, that was going to have businesses and housing and whatever more kind of interconnected. Right. Um, and so they, they look for this new town space. Um, but <laughs> you know, this uh, th there becomes actually a, a brand new protest in some ways, right? This is kind of the the new protest. A lot of Butte residents hadn't really dramatically and forcefully protested um, since um, well, since since you know about 1960. But here in the 1970s, as this gets debated and discussed, um, people get really upset, right? That there's an idea that they're going to move. Um, Uptown Butte, right? There's a growing group of people who think that historic preservation is important. There's a growing group of people who are interested in environmental movement and are upset that they had already given so much over to the mining company. A good example is that the, the company had long run a beloved amusement park called the Columbia Gardens, <clears throat> which was right on the outskirts of town. And the company essentially shut it down when it was not paying very well while well, they were spending lots of money on it. Um, but they shut it down also and then mined a little bit into the area. So again, it seemed like, again, that, that mining was um, encroaching on and ruining all the great, you know, environmental amenities and parks and things that the city had had. And so the fact that this new town eventually was slated to go into an area where there was going to be like a park uh, that, that was this already brand new big park in Butte became very upsetting, right? Because they were going to give over yet again more area just to the mining company, right? And so there's lots of suspicions um, and the kind of penchant for secrecy of Anaconda did not help, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it, it becomes, it, it actually ends up, um, the plan fails and a lot of people who were pushing it forward, who I think in general, most of them had the best intentions for the city of Butte, um, 
the fact that the plan fails and that all these, you know, uptown merchants and other people had led a successful protest against it was also very cathartic for Butte, right? Because even if the loss of uptown wasn't necessarily as imminent as they might have thought, um, there was this, you know, feeling that they had somehow survived, that they had successfully beaten back the company um, and this, you know, this big plan to, you know, lose what was truly Butte. Um, and so in some ways it also lets, lets a lot of people in Butte move on, right? Decide that maybe there's a future beyond just mining in Butte. Okay. Um, and you, the pit is still there. It's a, basically mm-hmm. a big toxic lake now. Um, what, what does that mean for this, this place? Yeah, well, it's it's tough, right? Because the you know the as the pit you know they they shut down the pit and they shut off all the pumps that had kept the water out of the pit and out of the underground mines. And so, in the 1980s, the pit gradually filled up. And so I actually remember this really well because I'd go into Butte and there'd be more water in the pit each time, right? Um, and we would be amazed by this. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's a it's a pit hard rock. Mines like, uh, you know, open pit mines like the Berkeley pit are essentially impossible to truly reclaim. So most of them just kind of sit there. And in Butte's case, right, because it you've opened up all of these, you know, hazardous minerals, things like, you know, copper and cadmium and arsenic, right, into the environment, <clears throat> this becomes really toxic. And it in some ways is, is kind of fascinating because it means that because it's right on the edge of the city, you know, Butte in some ways can't suddenly become not a mining town, right? There's a lot of these other mining towns who make this shift, you know, uh, to um, become, you know, a ski town, right? Or they now we're just an arts community or something. But in Butte, right, it's just so obvious, right? You come in there and there's this pit there that um, the the pit itself, right, uh, has become a symbol to a lot of people in the region, Right. Or even environmental action. You know, so a lot of environmental activists be like, you know, we don't want, you know, we they fight other kinds of mining operations or other industrial projects like we don't want another Berkeley pit here. Right. Um, And in Butte. Right. It has a lot of effects because um, it's it's going to be managed in perpetuity. Right. The the deal between the Environmental Protection Agency and um, the. the parties, which eventually, so uh, British P- Petroleum, right? BP essentially now owns that property, right? They inherited it because they bought the Atlantic Richfield Oil Company, which bought Anaconda. And so, you know, the deal between BP and <clears throat> and uh, uh, and the Environmental Protection Agency essentially just means that they manage this in perpetuity, right? And so somewhere around 2022, 2023, they're going to turn on a a big machine and it's going to start treating some of the water to put it back in so that the pit doesn't overflow. Right. So they're just concerned that the water is going to hit a level and then it's going to flow out right down into town and, and into the, into the stream. And so it's essentially just going to be managed there in perpetuity. And they have all sorts of kind of, you know, every now and then there's a big disaster because of the pit. And by disaster, I mean, often natural disaster. There's, there was one famous event in 1995 that essentially kind of replicated itself in um, 2016, which were large migrating snow geese die offs, right? So they land on the pit, you know, water looking for a water source, and then they ingest some of this 
poisonous water and then many of them died, right? So <laughs> they spent a lot of time trying to scare them off. Um, and in 2016, they had all sorts of things like robots and you know, like a robotic boat out there trying to scare them off. And they're, you know, shooting you know, loud noises in the air and they couldn't get these geese to leave because there was such a big storm. So there's these big geese die-offs. And so everybody, you know, in the region certainly knows this. And so in some ways it, it makes it a little bit difficult for Butte to to uh, sometimes truly move on or become a brand new thing. Um, I, I think there's also some ways in which it's great for Butte too, because it also, it's able to deal with um, mining history and, and what happens in mining areas without all of the, the, you know, the romanticization that happens in all these kinds of places. Right. Because, you know, you can also see both the detrimental effects just in the same ways that you can then talk about the amazing things that these minerals have done for us, right? And the major amounts of copper that we still use. I mean, you know, cars certainly in particular, right, have tons of copper sitting in them. And so, um, you know, I think um, it's it's interesting because there's some of that. I think that they also have used at various times, a lot of people in Butte have um, figured out ways to do kind of economic advancement through figuring out how to treat toxic uh, materials, right? Because they have so much of it dug up around them. Um and so that's been one other way that it's uh, that's had an effect. Um, but yeah, it's I think it's it's a pretty fascinating part of the story because um, that you know the, you're right the the pit is still always present in people's lives. Mm-hmm. One thing I was curious about reading your book was you know, we're living in a moment where there is a lot of discussion of the kind of romanticized miners in um, the pre- the present day, mm-hmm. usually coal miners in this case, of course, but right. um, the sort of iconic coal miner and also the concerns about the job loss and problems surrounding coal miners, but usually more in the jobs style than environmental style. Um, But I was Mm -hmm. curious if you have any thoughts about um, maybe we we might say lessons um, from, from Butte to kind of thinking about this broader uh, topic of deindustrialization or broader topic of mining and sort of shifting technologies and, and um, environmental aspects and ways in which mining works in different communities of, of what we can take from this case and think to think more broadly or to think about even the future, which I know is not what we do as historians, but um, this, this topic going forward or thinking about it in current um, public discourse, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, I think one one thing that certainly stands out to me is I, I think in general we all need to start um, thinking about and understanding better uh, modern mining and modern mining <laughs> techniques. I think in particular, right, when you think about coal mining, <clears throat> you know, and, and you're right, you know, all, all the major focus on, you know, Appalachian coal country, right, as, as the um, uh, over the last couple of years – is that these uh, these places, right? Number one, right? The, the reason why there are so few jobs is not really because of, you know, whatever environmental control, you know, and whatever the EPA coming in and telling people what to do necessarily. I mean, a lot of it is simply that they're actually producing a lot of material, right? They produce a lot of coal, just as like they produce a lot of copper still in Butte, and they can just do it with very few people, right? Because now we have massive trucks and machines and, um, and complicated technological ways to, to, uh, to 
get um, you know, to refine things. And and so you know, one is is I think being a little bit less stressed out about. Um, yeah, I, you know, I don't want this to all just turn and sound like, you know, uh, everything's just being run by robots soon, but <laughs> that's certainly one of the, um, I think one of the takeaways is just simply that, you know, mechanization and automation, right, um, have been ongoing. They've been ongoing concerns. Um, people have never quite figured out how to solve that problem, but maybe that's one of the ways to focus, right, is helping people through those big shifts, right? Um, in in work. And I think the other thing to think about is when you're thinking about whether it's hard rock copper mining or a thing like coal mining, is that there are often dramatic environmental consequences that happen. Um, and you, in some ways, uh, as a person living in the world using energy, are should feel somewhat responsible for them, right? That, you know, the fact that your house gets powered with whatever it is, right? Whether it's natural gas or whether it's coal from a coal plant, um, that you, you know, should should understand better what those, um, how those things happen, and certainly what kinds of costs they might be causing, especially for the communities near them, right? I mean, Butte's copper was used to do a lot of amazing things in modern America, but there were also a lot of costs that came with it, right, to the people of Butte. And so I think learning more about, especially the places that these things are coming from and the kinds of consequences, whether they're environmental or social, that came with it, I think is important. Um, and so I think there's uh, something of a lesson to be learned there. If you're thinking about coal mining, right, and, uh, you know, the, the funny thing about coal mining, there, in some ways, lots of that coal mining, right, whether it's in Appalachia, right, is done it, from the surface, right? There's surface coal mines now, <clears throat> right? It's, it's And so there's things like mountaintop removal, which are pretty dramatically destructive often to the environment and hard to do reclamation work on. Um, and so I think, um, you know, thinking about those kinds of consequences, um, not just the consequences, right, for the um, for the people who've lost their jobs, right, um, but also those consequences for all the people who live nearby who then get parts of a mountaintop dumped in their riverways, right? Um, what kinds of consequences are there um, for those people? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it strikes me as historians are wont to do, um, a lot of what you're saying is we just need to tell a much more complex story that the you right. know, job loss and the experience of job loss is both multi-causal or, and also there's there's the experience of actually losing one's job, which is obviously incredibly mm -hmm. painful, and also shifting types of jobs, which can be extremely painful mm -hmm. as well, both yeah. in, in your book and in the present day. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to ask one other question, sort of shifting a little bit to talking about your sources. Um, you used mm -hmm. a lot of interviews, and you you talk yeah. a little bit about um, those interviews and and memory and that the the experience of of this through interviews. And I know you did some of the interviews yourself, and then you also used some that others had done. But I was wondering if you might just talk a little bit about those interviews as sources and um, how you thought about them and thought about them as both um, reliable sources and important sources for, for what they tell you, but also I guess their limits and their benefits, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big believer in, in oral history interviews as a, a key aspect and an important way to, to gain a lot of um, research and, um, you know, insight. And so, yeah, I think in some ways those, 
I think you're right. You have to, you have to be careful, uh, but in some ways you need to be careful with any written source too. Mm -hmm. So in some ways I actually don't find them that different. I think often people treat interviews. They, I think they, because it's based often on people's memories, they, they treat them as somehow completely different and, you know, um, horrific in some ways, right. That they're in, no one's ever going to remember anything perfectly in the same way as if the document had been written at the time. But I mean, an interview has the same kinds of biases in some ways that a written source would, and a written recollection is in some ways the same thing, right. As an interview in that way. Um, plus I think if you've ever done any kind of research, that didn't have interviews and then suddenly were able to have an interview and you'd say, Oh wow, I could just ask this person this thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's an amazing experience. We're like, Oh wow. I could just literally find out the exact thing I wanted to know. Um, I, there are some things that interviews are really good at, you know, that um, like everyday life and routines, people typically re recall really well, um, much better than they do with kind of single events. And so Interviewing people about kind of work processes and how people did work in mines, actually, I, f I found, um, you know, it was very, you, 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 it's very reliable. And you can always cross check them in the same ways that you would with other sources, right, where, you know, you can look at different interviews, do they describe the way <clears throat> that a concentrator works in the exact same way? Oh, okay, well, that's probably how it worked, right. Mm -hmm. um, and so that certainly um, is important. And, you know, I think you're also right. You have to be careful because an interview, right, you as an interviewer, right, can really in, inter, influence the interviewees. Um, nostalgia, of course, is an issue. Um, and it can color those recollections. Although I think in some ways it's also a really interesting um, way to also help understand people's experience of uh, time and place. Um, I mean, you're right. Towards the end of the book, I end up spending more time kind of talking about the the memories as memories. Um, and, and, you know, one way that, um, I've certainly seen it, it was interesting because, um, nostalgia in particular has been sometimes been helpful, right. To people kind of reconnecting <laughs> with their neighbor, their old neighbors and neighborhoods. They've had a number of, of, um, uh, kind of neighborhood reunions for a lot of these now gone, um, neighborhoods. And so when you interview people about it, it's interesting because, you know, the, the older generations, right, who kind of bore the brunt of the kind of effects of relocation, right, were so upset by the whole effect, right, they didn't want to ever get together and talk about it, right? But the people who were like kids when it was relocated, for them, it's their, you know, that's the, it's the era of their childhood. And as we all love our childhoods, <laughs> whatever was happening during our childhood, including whatever horrible pop culture was going on, um, they love that part of their childhood. And so they've actually kind of reconnected many family members and neighborhood members that way and kind of reconnected with older food traditions and things kind of using um, that nostalgia and, and some of these. Um, uh, and so in some ways using interviews can tease out, right. How people's kind of general impressions, right. About these um, events in their lives. Right. So uh, there I was just kind of using the example of relocation and I was trying to figure out like, why is it suddenly that, People are having reunions, right? When there's so few of the people who remember those neighborhoods really well left alive. And I eventually figured out, well, it's, it's you know, through the interviews is the way I figured it out, right? Because when you talk to people about the experience of relocation, right, there was a, a kind of a warmth and nostalgia in the interviews I did with people who were kids at that time. And then I compared it to people who were done uh, 
often by other people who interviewed them and they would say, oh, well, actually, I don't, there was very little nostalgia in there, right? That there, they, it was really rough and still felt, you know, raw to them, you know, in terms of that emotional energy. So I think there's just some ways that interviews can get at and answer questions that there's, that other materials could never do, right? Um, and I think as long as you're uh, kind of appreciating their conversational nature and the ways that sometimes indeed they can be colored by subjectivity and nostalgia um, and you cross check them. I think they're very valuable sources and can be as valuable, if not even more so at getting this, a sense of people's daily lives. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and daily life is one of the things that's hardest to get at mm-hmm. from written records for, I mean, assuming you're not like the president or something, right. If you're a, right. a person or whatnot as a historian. So, yeah. And most people don't keep diaries or, you know, <laughs> or, and if they do, they're not recording their social interactions with everybody in the neighborhood. Right. And so I just think there's, there's some things that interviews can do that are incredibly valuable that you can't get out of another source. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Did you have a favorite interview, whether one you did or one you read? Oh boy. I, I you know, uh, I, I don't know if I'd be insulting anyone <laughs> if I chose someone's interview. Fair enough. Over another one. Um, yeah, there's a, a guy uh, um, that uh, I guess kind of immediately uh, comes, uh, Jim Matucci, who uh, gave me this, you know, incredibly long interview that was, he was, he, he was a former Meterville resident, but I mean, he had just an incredible backstory, including this um, amazing uh, childhood experience, which of course is nowhere in the book because you can never include anything that's, <laughs> you know, everything sure. that, you know, he, where we were talking about kind of hazards during the underground mining days. And he had this experience where, uh, you know, he had um, encountered or found like a blasting cap from a mine on the ground and didn't really realize what it was. And it blew up and he lost his eye. Um, And he had this amazing touching story about um, uh, his father's death. And in some ways you you just get such a great sense of these people, um, uh, you know, in the same way that we all love talking about ourselves. Right. Um, (laughs) um, And his just kind of stands out to me because there's, you know, just kind of an emotional roller coaster of his entire life I got out of that interview. Um, And so in some ways, right, the uh, I feel kind of sad that I I don't have as many, you know, as much of these people's lives um, in the book. Right. As as uh, really you can get out of some of these interviews. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Sounds like a wonderful interview. Um, well, we've taken up a lot of your time. So just to kind of wrap up, I was wondering if you might tell us, are you going to continue to do some research in Montana or on mining? Or do you have a, a new project? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm one of those people who's always working on uh, multiple projects, not very well, <laughs> um, because I'm trying to do too much. You know, I guess I will mention two uh, separate uh, projects, one that is indeed about mining, Um uh, although not really as as kind of <laughs> grounded in reality, I guess I'd say because I'm uh, I'm I'm working on a, a history of the portrayal of mining and pop culture, um, and so uh, it's been fun because I've been able to do everything from um, oh I don't know play Minecraft uh, to uh, watch the many many reality shows that <laughs> feature mining um, like Gold Rush. Um, that, uh, you know, just to get a sense of, of kind of how people encounter the mining industry, both today and, and in the past, you know, I think this really originally became started because I love watching Westerns. And so I was like, well, I'll watch some more Westerns and I'll call it a research project. 
Um, and then eventually, it, you know, I got a little bit too much in depth. And so now I'm, you know, encountering all sorts of different kinds of pop culture from uh, both the past and present. So that's one. And then the other uh, project that, I, um, uh, that I'm working on a little bit more slowly just because I need more um, – you know, it takes more time to get the research resources, but I'm working on a history of speed limits in the American West. Oh, okay. Um, and so I've been um, heading out to some archives uh, across the West to learn a little bit more about, um, especially um, protests over federal impositions of speed limits um, and uh, some of the ways that uh, Westerners think about um, their, their kind of wide open spaces, so to speak, um, differently than people out east, and so that's been a fun project to engage in. Well, those both sound great. I uh, look forward to reading them when they come out. Yeah, me too. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. Thanks so much, Christine.